Go ahead and open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 4, and we will be taking a closer look at verses 5 to 9 of Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 to 9, 9a. If you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 5. See, I have taught you the statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this Great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. O Israel, declared the Lord, if you would be wise and great in the sight of all the peoples, then keep and do my commandments. For that will be your wisdom, that will be your understanding in the sight of all the peoples who, when they hear of all these rules and statutes, who, when they see you living them out, and when they note the abundant and numerous blessings that come upon you, but because you are obedient, they will say, Surely... This, is na- this great nation is a wise and understanding people. O oh, Israel, if you would enjoy the nearness of God, the nearness of the God who answers you whenever you call upon him, then keep and do my commands. Take care, O Israel. Keep your soul diligently, O Israel, and ensure that not a single generation forgets the goodness and the holiness and the power of the living God who dwells in your midst. O Israel, declared the Lord, if you would live long in the land that I am giving you to possess, if you would enjoy a plentiful quantities of grain and wine and oil so that you never have to worry about what you eat, never have to worry about what you will drink, never have to worry about what you will wear because the Lord your God knows you need all these things and will provide them to you because he loves to give them to his children. Then hear my words and devote yourself to keeping them all the days of your life. You see, from the very beginning of Israel's existence, the Lord held out to this people the offer of hope, the offer of joy-filled, abundant life in the land of Canaan, in the land that had been promised to their fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He offered to the nation the respect and admiration of all the other nations, who as they watched Israel function and live as the Lord's treasured possession, among all the peoples, as they watched Israel live as God's kingdom of priests and his holy nation, then the nations would say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. It seems so simple, doesn't it? Reveal your love and your fear and your reverence for the Lord by keeping his statutes and the commensurate blessing of revealing your love by keeping the commandments of the Lord will be this, O Israel, a peaceful, admired, God-glorifying life in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. Now, that might sound simple enough. 
That might sound easy enough, but ancient Israel would eventually prove to be her own worst enemy. They forgot the Lord in a short time. They rebelled against the Lord, against the statutes and the rules and the commands given to them by the Lord, even going so far as to bow down to idols that were worshipped by the nations around them and becoming like the nations instead of becoming the distinct holy people that God had called them to be. Instead of being applauded by the nations as a great and wise people of the Lord because they kept themselves from idolatry and held fast to the Lord, the people of Israel became just like all the nations prostrating themselves to rocks and to sticks carved into the image of things on the earth. It seems so simple. Reveal your love for the Lord by obeying His commands. You go back to the Garden of Eden. The serpent approached Eve and in essence told her, God doesn't want your good. God doesn't want your blessing. And you see that tree he told you not to eat from? He told you not to eat from it because he doesn't want you to be like him, knowing good from evil. You see, the Lord had not in that moment revealed to Eve the blessings of obeying the Lord's call by not eating the fruit of the tree. It was kind of assumed that I've given you all these other trees in the garden. Enjoy every single one of them. But Satan capitalized on this. But now when you get to the Lord giving the law to Israel at the beginning of her existence as she goes into the land, the Lord reveals to them both the curse of disobedience and the bountiful blessing of obedience. Seems like we are a people from that point to this who need step-by-step-by-step-by-step instructions. We need to know what's going to happen when we do something wrong and what's going to happen when we do something correctly. So God gave that to this people. As we work through Deuteronomy, you will see it over and over again. Oh, Israel, choose life. And how do you choose life? Oh, keep and do my commands. Keep your soul diligently and I will bless you. The alternative is choose death. And how do you choose death? Disobey the commands of the Lord. Do you got it, oh Israel? It would be so easy, right, for us to look at these ancient Israelites and think to ourselves, how could they be so dull? How could they be so foolish? So mindless. I mean, it's so clear what God was offering to them. It's so open and obvious. Obey and you'll live. Disobey and you'll be cursed and die. That seems so easy. And that they would exchange the glory of the living God for such laughable and ridiculous and lesser things as the idols of the nation? How could they be so foolish? You and I might like to think such things about ancient Israel, but in like manner to ancient Israel, here's a truth that we should all know. You and I are oftentimes our own worst enemies also. The temptation remains the same. Live a completely different life than the sinners and the rebels that we see in the world and meet with the results that always arise from living such a distinct and separated life, ridicule and persecution, or perhaps further conversation and discussion about the Lord by those who are inquiring, and even glory of glories, the salvation of souls. As people look and see that there is something different, I don't want to be a part of the death works of the world anymore. I want to be a part of the marvelous light of Jesus Christ that I see in you. These are the, exa- these are the things you will encounter as you live a distinct life. The temptation for us, as it was for Israel, is this, that first little bit, you live a distinct and holy life, there will come times of difficulty and persecution in the world. And so many shrink back, 
and follow the path of the world and become a worldling because we are too afraid to actually live that distinct life in the world. And you know what's funny is while we live a silent life in the world, doing everything the world does, holding to the the values and the convictions of the world, we convince ourselves, we fool ourselves into thinking we're doing something unique, something authentic, something bold, which we're not. We're really just drones. You have that option. Same with Israel. Israel had the option to become like the nations around them or to seek the Lord and live, to turn to the Lord and live, to obey the Lord and live. And the decision that Israel made in these moments would chart the course. Droning to Gehenna or eternal life in the halls of Christ. Now you know... Which is most precious? You and I know, if you truly love the Lord Jesus Christ, you know in your heart that the will and the word and the the commands of our Lord Jesus Christ are precious jewels to be desired more than gold. But like Israel, how often do we choose to simply disobey them? Because in the moment, we think we know better. Ask yourself, and really ask yourself, what is the biggest obstacle to joy in my life? Who is it that causes the most problems in my life? Who or what is the single most tenacious, most persistent, most tireless enemy to my joy? Who or what causes me more afflictions, torments, burdens, distresses, griefs, sadnesses, anxieties, heartaches, and miseries than me? Not me, right? You're asking yourself this question. (laughs) Who is it? The answer to that question is no one. You and I might want to pin our difficulties on other people. But in the end, you and I cause our own selves more hardship than anyone else around us does. It was the same for Israel. And how do you and I do that to ourselves? We do that by listening to our flesh as our flesh energetically and enthusiastically sets itself to deceiving us holding out to our eyes the bait that is sin, but always hiding the hook, as the old Puritans used to say, prompting our desires to take part in sin, prodding us to justify our commitment to and participation in sin and rebellion and disobedience to the commands of the Lord. Our flesh will justify our move toward the practice of sin, And it'll persuade us to wonder, the same wonder that Eve felt in the garden. Did God really say, I can't do this? I mean, God created me this way, right? And God doesn't make mistakes. I've heard that one ad nauseum. Now, just as an aside, I want to just take a moment by way of explanation to explain what I mean when I say our flesh. And when I talk about the flesh, I mean that as of yet unredeemed part of our person. Now let me explain that because it's a, it's a big concept. For every single one of us in here who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, for all who have truly turned to Jesus Christ for eternal life and forgiveness of sin by grace through faith in His name, let me just start off at the outset and say, your soul is redeemed. Amen. You have been born again spiritually. You have been born from above by the Holy Spirit. You have been redeemed by Christ and the Spirit lives in you. And the Spirit in you convicts you of sin and points you to the Scriptures and reminds you of the things that Christ has commanded, all of which are recorded for us in the Scriptures. 
But while our souls have been redeemed, our souls have been renewed, our souls have been regenerated, and the Spirit has taken up residence in us, for every single believer on this side of heaven, we still live in this physical body that has not yet been renewed, not yet been glorified. This one. And you know it. You know it's not been redeemed and glorified. You know it's still in bondage to corruption. Think about your physical ailments in here. Think about you're young. If you're young, you're bouncing off the walls. I'm, you know, I, I, I remember when I realized that my body was in bondage to corruption. It was when I was youth pastoring here, we were playing football out in that field right over there. And I thought, I'm fast, I'm good, I can keep it going, I'm about 33, 34, 35, and uh, I had never been blown by somebody, somebody has never blown by me in my defensive prowess. And we lined up, and I'm lining up against the teenager, the teenager takes off, and woof, and I could not keep up. And I'm like, oh, guys, let's slow this down a bit, somebody's going to get hurt up in here. And you know, as you get older, you get a little more frail, a few more pains. You get sick. You get injured, and it takes a while to recover. And as you get older, it takes longer to recover. As you get older, your balance gets a little less, and you might fall, and it takes a while to, to get better from that. I just went for my last eye exam, and I am, I'm at, I, for the first time, just a few weeks ago, I had to do this when I looked at something up close. This is our bodies. This is what is happening to our bodies. Our bodies are in bondage to corruption. I heard a mm-hmm over here. <laughs> mm-hmm, I feel it. <laughs> the glorious blessing of a, a renewed body comes in the future when Jesus Christ raises us up with new imperishable bodies with a flesh that, because it is renewed, perfectly aligns with what the Apostle Paul calls our inner being, that renewed part of ourself, that regenerated soul that exists in every believer that desperately seeks to live according to the will of the Lord. See, all of us here who love Jesus, we are waiting with expectation for that most excellent day because the war we fight every single day here on earth is exhausting, isn't it? All of us here wait, living as redeemed souls in as of yet unredeemed bodies. And the two are at odds with each other. The Apostle Paul speaks to this reality in Galatians 5 when he said, The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. The Apostle Peter also speaks to this conflict that exists in us between the spirit and the flesh when he exhorted his readers saying, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. And it's this very war that exists in every single one of us that the Apostle Paul wrote about in an inspired autobiographical section of Romans in one of my favorite passages in Scripture because it so perfectly captures and so perfectly describes the battle that is so familiar to every single one of us. When the Apostle Paul said in Romans 7, I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. This battle raging in himself caused the Apostle Paul to cry out, wretched man that I am. Listen, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who can bring this unrelenting battle in me between spirit and flesh? Who can bring this battle between the spirit in me who's convicting me of sin and works to aid me in my holiness of life, to help me grow in my faith, who comforts me with promises of my forgiveness? 
who, when I am overcome by my flesh, reminds me that our Lord is faithful and just to forgive, who will help me in the battle between that spirit and the passions of my flesh, which never cease, not even for a second. Doesn't cease trying to seduce me and to coax me into committing the sin that brings about all my vexations and all of my messes. Who will deliver me from this body of death? This flesh filled with lusts and passions and desires for pleasures that lead to the consequences I hate. And if you're like me, you know deep down that you hate the so-called pleasures of the world. I know I hate what they produce. I know I hate when my flesh leads me into moments of pride and arrogance and bitterness and hostility and quarreling and gossiping and slander. I hate all of it, and I know you do too if Christ is in you. And yet, here we are, people who quarrel, proud people, bitter, hostile, angry, I know that this sin kills, and even so, for some reason, it's just so alluring. What is wrong with me? Has anyone else ever asked that question? Not about me. (laughs) You might ask that question about me, that's fine. But I mean about you. You ever asked that about yourself? What is wrong with me? I want to live for Christ, and here I am on the opposite side, it seems. Unable to get over this fleshly thing that's going on inside of me. What is wrong with me? Help me, Lord. Give me strength, Lord. Help me, my Savior. I cling to you. That might be you, or you might be sitting here saying, No, Pastor, you got this all wrong. If you are telling me that I'm my own worst enemy, you're just wrong. If you're telling me that I'm the primary cause of the troubles in my life, no, you're wrong. It's everyone around me that's the cause of my troubles. It's their words spoken to me. It's their sins against me. It's their actions toward me. They are the source and cause of my lack of joy. If that's you, then James would like to have a word. Not James, but James from Scripture. In the letter that bears his name, the half-brother of Jesus said this to all who would blame their sin on somebody else. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, meaning shifting the blame to somebody else. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But listen, but each person is tempted. Who falls into that? Each person. Each person. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So do not be deceived, my brothers. And again, James speaking, speaks to the reasons for divisions and hostilities that arise among the brethren. While we might spend our time trying to assess who's at fault and who's got blame and this person should get 70% of the blame and I should get 30%. No, wait, they should get 60 and I should get 40. No, wait, they should get 100 and I should get zero. We spend a lot of time in this zone, right, trying to figure out the correct ratio so that everybody can fix all this stuff and people could do the appropriate penitence to me that I think should be brought to me. We spend a lot of time in this zone thinking that if they would just shape up, then I would have some joy. James doesn't allow us to do that, though. That's a death work. That is one of the strategies that the enemy uses to keep you in misery. James, in 4 verses 1 and 2, will say, What causes quarrels among you? Or what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? You see that? It's not that everyone around you is haranguing you. It's your passions are at war within you. My passions are at war within me. You desire and do not have, so you murder. 
you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Who does James lay, where does James lay this all? At your doorstep, at my doorstep. The story is told of the English author and Christian apologist from the early 20th century, G.K. Chesterton, who, reading an article in the newspaper, asked the question, what is wrong with the world? So obviously the author of that article looked out at the world and saw the bitterness, hostility, rage, anger, division that was, a, that was present in all of the world, and so asked the question, what is wrong with the world? And many wrote in, some blaming the leader, the political leader, some blaming the policies, some blaming social practice, some blaming their neighbors, some blaming their family members, everyone blaming somebody. And G.K. Chesterton wrote in and with a response that simply read this, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. Who's the problem? This man got it. I'm the problem. It's yet another dimension of the flesh's skillful masterpiece of deception to keep you and I fixated on the other person and not here. On those people and those situations and those circumstances that are outside of ourselves to consider them or that the primary reason for my trials and my difficulties when in reality it's our very own selves. We are our own worst enemies. In the same way as ancient Israel proved to be for herself, things haven't changed much. It's the passions at war within us and our succumbing to and giving into those passions that brings misery and despair in our life rather than joy and blessing. Think of the things that are produced in you. Think of the things that are produced in us as we give in to envy. Does it produce anything good in you? Think of the things that are produced in you when you covet or when you are sexually immoral or when you're bitter. All of these harm our own joy more than anyone else's. They rob us, us more of our joy than the person against whom we hold these things. So you are your own worst enemy. I am mine. And so we, as a body of believers, must work together as a family to assist each other in the fight. That's the point, one of the main reasons for the church. To assist each other in this fight, to lovingly remind one another of this truth. When you see somebody going down the direction of being their enemy, saying, you're your own worst enemy right here. For the glory of God and for your joy, let me admonish you and rebuke you. Jesus actually spoke of the war this way. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose... One of your members, then that your whole body go to hell. Talk about showing sin no quarter. Talk about a ruthless, remorseless, pitiless disposition to crucify our sinful passions in order to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. This is the gravity and the seriousness with which the Lord spoke to his Old Testament people through his Old Testament prophets and to his New Testament people through his New Testament apostles. They all, from the beginning until the close of the canon, reminded us that humans will be engaged in this battle until our glorious resurrection. And one of the major truths that we must accept and believe and hold on to with an unyielding conviction is this. The laws, the rules, the statutes, the commands of the living God, those commands given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ, they promote our joy and promote our blessing while rebellion and sin result in trial, misery, trouble, and maybe even death. And as you say that, there will be some who cry, that's just legalism. No, it is not. 
Legalism is believing that by obeying the commands of God that you can win his affection, win his approval, and win his salvation. We reject that outright. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. But those who are truly saved strive to obey Christ, to reveal their love for Jesus and commitment to their own joy by obeying Christ. Think about it. Could you imagine? I'm not going to get done today. I'm sorry. Could you imagine what a nation that believed in Jesus Christ and followed the word and command of our Lord Jesus Christ would be like? Could you imagine what Israel would have looked like in Deuteronomy had they followed? A nation where people didn't steal or murder. A nation whose citizens never committed adultery or infidelity of any kind. A nation where no one lied about or lied to each other. Where no one bore false witness about another. Where no one coveted anyone else's belongings, but everyone generously helped each other as each had need from our own bounty. What would a nation that loved the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength be like? Imagine a nation that found its rest in Christ. A nation that had no room for vengeance because everyone worked not only for their own good, but for the good of their neighbor. Imagine the blessedness of such a nation. Blessed with healthy families, with godly leaders, with trust, with truth, with peace, and so much more. You can think about that and think, I want to live in that. You will one day in the millennial kingdom. But this is what Moses was offering to Israel in this moment. This is what the Lord was offering through Moses to Israel when the law was being delivered to Israel in this moment. As he preached the sermons of Deuteronomy, the Lord was setting before them a law from which wisdom and joy as a nation would issue if they'd only obey. Ultimately, you know the history, right? Israel proved to be its own worst enemy, and they rebelled against the Lord, forfeiting, for at least for the time being, the life offered them by the Lord. They provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord would eventually pour out upon them the curses of Deuteronomy. And the Lord would kick them out of the land and send them into exile under the Assyrian, the Babylonian, the Persian, and the Roman empires. All of that would come later, but at this moment, as Moses relays to the people the law of the Lord and exhorts them to obey, Moses understands exactly what's being offered. He understood, and for this reason, he continually, over and over again, for the blessing and the benefit of his fellow Israelites, implored them to lay hold of life. Lay hold of joy by obeying the Lord. And for that reason, he took the law so seriously and made sure that what he relayed to the people was exactly what the law of God had commanded, exactly what he had received from the mouth of the Lord. You see it in verse 5. Introduction done. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. See, Moses set down the rules and the decrees of God as the Lord had charged him to, meaning the commands revealed to the people by the Lord through Moses were not the commands of Moses, but the commands of the Lord himself. And not a single one of them in ancient Israel was up for debate. They were authoritative, they were non-negotiable, and they were given by the Lord for the blessing of the people of Israel. And they were to obey them as the Lord intended them to be obeyed. These commands were to be Israel's charter, its constitution. It were, they, were, they were to govern their life in the land. And if they did them, the Lord promised to bless them as a result. And so in verse 6, the Lord said to them, keep them and do them. Meaning, conform your life to them, pattern your life on them, and by so doing, reveal your healthy fear of the Lord, your faith in His promises, and your love of His person. And Moses continues, that will be your wisdom. This is a truth reiterated throughout Scripture also. The psalmist, for example, in Psalm 111 verse 10, wrote this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have good understanding. 
And King David wrote, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. And listen, in keeping them, there is great reward. I can imagine David singing these words to a young Solomon as he prepared Solomon for the crown. Passing on to Solomon the key to the nation's continuing peace and prosperity and blessing and wisdom. Saying to Solomon, obey Obey the Lord. Obey the law of the Lord. The best way to live, according to Solomon, in the Proverbs, he heard early on in his life exactly what David was telling him. In Proverbs 3, you know it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. You see, every time the Lord calls on us to obey him, that there is some reminder about the blessing, the blessedness that comes with obedience. Here, Healing for your flesh and refreshment to your bones. I don't know about you, but there are times in life when I could use a little bit of refreshment. For ancient Israel, their obedience would show them to be a wise people, skilled and knowledgeable people. Their obedience would also be, in verse 6, their understanding in the sight of the people. Meaning that by their obedience to the commands of the Lord... The nations would recognize them as a people possessing intelligence, possessing some information or some exalted degree of wisdom unknown among any of the other kingdoms, which would lead those kingdoms to come knocking on Israel's door and saying, tell me, tell me, tell me, we want this life. So much so, verse 6, that when they hear all these statutes, they will say, surely this nation this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And under the reign of King Solomon, you see this actually play out before he rebelled against the Lord and sought a life of indulging his fleshly passions. Before that, we read in 1 Kings 3.3 that Solomon loved the Lord and walked in the statutes of David his father. And he earnestly desired, 1 Kings 3.11, to discern what is right he wanted to know how to lead and to govern the nation in the ways and in the will and in the paths of the Lord. And so the Lord said to Solomon in 1 Kings 3.12, Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. And the Lord continued in verse 14, If you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And the result of Solomon's early love for the Lord, his early commitment to walking in the ways of the Lord, a few things came to pass in Judah. In 1 Kings 4.20, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. The Lord also gave the nation rest and peace on every side. There were no adversaries or misfortunes in the land. And 1 Kings 4.20, people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So you see, as the nation obeyed and followed the statutes and the law, the Lord blessed them. And the peoples did, in, did indeed consider ancient Israel for a time to be a great, wise, and understanding people. Israel's obedience to the Lord was designed by the Lord to be such a visible public display of God's glorious perfection, visible to everyone, to all the peoples and all the nations around them. And in those days, the nations saw and the kings and the queens came to learn from the wisdom of Solomon. That's a far cry from our own nation's cultural moment, isn't it? 
our society seems to prize and to value this notion of a personal, and when I say personal, I mean a private faith. But you see, right from the beginning of the scriptures all the way to the end of the canon or the close of the canon, the Lord has never given his people permission to live that way. Private faith is a modern Western concoction. And I've never understood how some can say, well, my faith is a private thing, I don't really talk about it. Scriptures do not give us permission to do that. It is a design of the enemy to snuff out the light, to keep people from seeing your good works, hearing your gospel words, and giving glory to God in heaven. And Jesus Jesus reiterated this principle of loud, vibrant, visible public faith in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? When he said this, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may, what? See your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, the command is to live a blazing, blatant, bold life of obedience to the Lord publicly to display His greatness. And in conjunction with such a loud life of obedience, make disciples. Teach them to obey everything Christ has commanded. See, there is no room for a private faith to overtake or to devour the light that God has called us to be to the world. Nor is there room for us who profess faith in Jesus Christ to hide that light under a basket. It wasn't permitted in Israel. It's not permitted for us. To do so, simply put, is rebellion and disobedience to the Lord. Now, again, as we live out our faith public, publicly, always remember that the world is full of people who will simply refuse to recognize their need for the Lord, who refuse to understand their sinful condition before a holy God, who refuse to accept the truth of their eternal destination should they remain at enmity with God, rebuffing the gracious offer of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. They're like children who refuse, struggling and writhing against the loving hand trying to administer the awful-tasting medicine that they truly need to overcome their sickness. If you're a parent in here, you know what that's like, trying to jam Buckley's down the throat of a child. But even if that's the case, and it is, you and I must never stop shining as we strive to live obedient, public lives of faith in and for Christ. Moses continued... This law and all of its blessings given to Israel is a gift to them from their God. That he chose to reveal his holy law, his perfect law to them, leads Moses to say in verse 7, What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? Are we, O Israel, the most populous nation? No. Were we deserving of the Lord's outstretched arm and power as he delivered us from enslavement in Egypt? No. Do we have the most powerful army? No. Are we the smartest and most capable? No. No, 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 no. But let the world have all of that. Let the nations have all of that. What does any of that matter when we understand that none of them have a God so near to it as we do? We have the Lord who is here to answer us whenever we call on Him. That's the blessing. Who cares about armies and who cares about all the the riches and things that other nations might have? We have a God so near to us that when we call, He answers. And that God was near to ancient Israel meant near in a relational sense. And this was a marked contrast to the gods, so-called small g gods, worshipped by the nations. The gods of the nations were not relationally close. Well, first off, they don't exist. But they were not, in mind, relationally close to the people. The peoples believed their gods to be what we call deistic, meaning that they were uninvolved with and lacked any concern for the lives of those who worshipped them. And they were also quite capricious and quite moody. The ones who served such gods never knew what to expect 
One day, the gods might seem to glad to receive ten chickens from the hand of one man in sacrifice, only to be insulted the next day by the same ten chickens offered by another person in sacrifice. And the gods of the peoples were all about taking from the people in order to satisfy themselves. And perhaps, perhaps, maybe, if a person gave enough, they might catch that God's attention, which led the nations to throw their own children into the fires of sacrifice, believing that this was the most precious thing they could give to their gods. And perhaps, perhaps, I might get his attention. The so-called gods of the nations were always angry, always remote, always taking from the people. Does that sound familiar? If you consider the gods of your own culture, they possess very much the same attributes, right? The gods of the modern Western culture are fickle, attentive one day, tossing you in the fire the next, unappeasable, always changing. They are exhausting. Whereas we, Winona Gospel Church, we have a God who is so near to us that He hears us whenever we call. The living God that we serve is the God of hope, the God of peace, the God of rest. And the Apostle Paul would try to tell the Greeks that in Acts chapter 17 when he said to them, Listen, pagans, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Did you hear it? God is not served by human hands because he needs nothing. You add nothing to him. And listen, that might insult some of you, but I find it just so... <sighs> he needs nothing from me. The Lord is perfectly satisfied in his own triune self. There is nothing I can do or that you can do to give him something that would add to him. There's nothing you and I could do to take anything from him. And all of this proves beyond any shadow of a doubt that the God who is near to us is not a God who is, design, who is trying to take anything from you. He is the God who gives. The giving God. And so when you see God giving his law and giving his commands to Israel, and when you see Jesus Christ in the New Testament giving us laws and giving us commands, he is not giving those things to take from us. He is giving us those things that we might have life and life to the full because your God does not take from you. He gives to you. And you can imagine, right, what the nations might think if they were to see the closeness of the Lord to an obedient Israel. And then as they watch Israel serving their Lord and the Lord giving them blessing after blessing, and then they kind of go back to their own gods and wonder, what is going on here? My gods are arbitrary and volatile and unstable. Imagine them as they listen to King David skipping along throughout Israel, singing Psalm 4-3, The Lord hears when I call to Him. As those nations are all sacrificing their own children in order to get their God's attention. As they, like in 1 Kings 17-28, in the a Mount Carmel contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. They're all cutting themselves and the blood is gushing on them and they're crying out in a frenzy and they're raving. Again, does that sound familiar? The people of our own day who serve the gods of the nations also do much the same thing, cutting their bodies, shrieking and raving in frenzies to serve their gods. Things haven't changed, and yet contrast that with us. We have a God so near to us that he hears us when we call out to him. And he offers us peace. Think about the contrast of nations who have no clue how to appease their gods. Those gods might love them one day and throw them out the next. They have to make it up as they go, hoping they get it right, hoping their works are to their benefit and not to their detriment. Whereas we have a God who says, this is, what I this is what I expect. It's easy. It's right here. Plain letters. Black and white, or if you have a Bible that has red lettering, red and white. 
And that's what Moses speaks to when we get to verse 8. What great nation is there that has statutes so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? What nation has laws so pure, so fair, so equitable, so just, so upright, because they reflect the righteousness of the God who revealed them? You know who has them? No one. The Lord, the living God, and the law that he gave to Israel would set them apart from all others because of its perfect righteousness and justice, along with the relationship that it fostered with God and the justice that would be promoted among the people. The same is true for us. The words and the commands of Jesus Christ promote righteousness among us, justice among us, camaraderie among us, love among us. I think we'll end there for today. Father, we thank you and we praise you for being the God who gives, the God who is near to us when we call, the God who will one day raise up our bodies imperishable and glorious and end the war that is constantly being waged inside our own souls. We thank you that you are a God who is not fickle and not changing. You are not like the gods of the nations who demand that we spill our blood and throw our children in the fire, but you're the God who gave. You gave up your child, and you, you, you spilled your own blood. So, Father, I pray that we would be encouraged this morning, that we would be encouraged in the battles that we're fighting in our own flesh the war that is fought between the spirit and the flesh in us, I pray that you would continually remind us of the good news of Jesus Christ, that we are clothed in his righteousness, our sins are forgiven in his name, and that you will not let us go. You have given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment of our inheritance until you bring us to the attainment of it. We praise you for that. We praise you that our Lord Jesus Christ said that Nobody can snatch my sheep from my hand. Father, I pray that you would give us the ability to walk confidently and hopefully and peacefully in that, striving in gratitude and thankfulness by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us to crucify the passions of the flesh and to live and keep in step with the Spirit. We pray this all in the wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.